we are gathered here at the Reformation Montana Conference, and today the Supreme Court of the United States made a historic ruling. And we wanted to sit down and briefly discuss together that ruling. Uh, let me read, just read from the New York Times. I'm just going to read the first paragraph of an article today. This is by Adam Liptick of the New York Times. Supreme Court ruling makes same-sex marriage a right nationwide. In a long-sought victory for the gay rights movement, the Supreme Court ruled by a 5-4 to four vote on Friday that the Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. Now, first off, is anyone here surprised that a lost and dying world in full and open rebellion against God is acting like a lost and dying world in full and open rebellion against God? No. So were any of us shocked or surprised by this? What does the Bible say about gay marriage? Come on, Somebody? Chris? It's uh, listed among a bunch of other sins. It's a sin. It's a sin. You know, and Scripture's clear that those who engage in that sin as well as other sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the message of Christianity, though, doesn't end with that. It's not enough to say that this is a sin, so knock it off. That's not what this is about. It's about the message of the cross tells us that we're all sinners. Romans 4 says that Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good people. He didn't die for holy people. He died for the ungodly. And so scripture reveals all of our sins in its many different varieties. And um, same-sex attraction, same-sex sex, that's all sin that Christ bled and died for. And he calls us to repent and to be forgiven. One of the reasons why there's silence when the question is asked is because um, we've all talked that to death. We've explained what the issue is, what the problem is with gay marriage. Every guy on the stage I've heard address this topic, and we've addressed it over and over and over again. So I think that all of us are feeling rather deflated. We have fought this fight. Uh, we've used apologetics. We've used scripture. We've explained ourselves theologically, biblically. We've exegeted the texts. We've done everything that we can do to explain to the culture why this it is something that stands in direct opposition to his nature. It stands in direct opposition to the way he created the world and the order uh, that he designed humanity to, to behave in and to live in. And I think the, the deflated nature of all of us, and I think Christians nationwide, is pervasive. We all feel let down. And I think what we need to let the church know as pastors and leaders in the church is that it's not as though the, the battle was lost. There's a court that's higher than the Supreme Court. And that court has spoken. The question is, okay, this is a game changer. This changes now. This changes everything. How do we respond to that? You, you know, you asked if uh, any of us was surprised. I, frankly, I would have been shocked if the decision had gone the other way. Because you, you just assume that... Uh, well, the Supreme Court for years has been on the on the left-leaning side of practically every issue they've decided, and they tend to mirror and imitate what uh, what the uh, so-called progressive side of culture or their agenda is. So I would have been very surprised if the court had gone the other way. 
the, as I said earlier, the problem isn't our legislature or our courts. It's, it's, it's not even secular culture. The problem really goes back to the church and the fact that the church got away from you know, preaching the gospel and began to entertain the saints and entertain the world. And uh, we've lost our authority and credibility. And so, honestly, it, it is no surprise to me that the secular world looks at the evangelical movement and thinks we're a joke. Because I look at the evangelical movement and think the bulk of it is simply a joke. Uh, and in a way, I, I see some hopeful signs. If the courts and the culture and, and everything is simply going to formalize and recognize how anti-God our culture is, I think the long-term effect of that on the church is going to be purifying. It is going to mean... Uh, persecution. I'm not excited that that's coming, but I've thought about it, and I'm prepared to, you know, go to prison if necessary for what I believe, and I'll just have a jail ministry. Uh, that's what Paul did, right? I mean, people often say, well, what do you think the apostles would have done? What did they do? They went to prison for what they believed in, and I think we need to be willing to do that, and if you're not willing to do that, then you really shouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ. Uh, so I, I see these as uh, just more signs and very clear signs that the church needs to get serious, that Christians need to get serious. And we need to take our faith seriously. And Christians ought to see this as a rebuke, not from our culture, but from our God, who, if you read in Romans 1, when it's talking about the decline of society, what it's describing there is divine judgment. God gave them over to the lusts of their heart. And what we're seeing is judgment from God. This is not a derailing of the plan of God. This is precisely what Scripture says uh, will happen in any culture that rejects the truth and rejects God. And those of us who affirm the truth and want to stand firm for it simply need to be prepared for what is to come and stiffen our backbones and, and uh, be prepared. But I also like something that... I think it was Todd who said this. It all kind of blends together in a day. That um, the, 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 the gay community are not our enemies. They're the mission field. They're, they're, they're enslaved to our enemy. And I think a lot of Christians have difficulty keeping that straight. They think in a, in a, in a time like this, the thing to do is get really insulting towards people who, who are entangled in those sins. And that's the wrong way for the church to go as well days ahead, I suspect that Christians are going to try to figure out how to process this and perhaps feel a little bit better about it. And I hope that the church will not be thinking uh, in terms of worldly court decisions, thinking, well, Dred Scott was bad law and that ultimately got changed. This is bad law. And we'll just work to get it changed. And while that might be well and good, I think that's to miss what's actually happening right now and that there's a battle in the spiritual realms that is happening right now for the souls of men, for consciences that are troubled, for people who need to hear about the grace of Jesus Christ, that the church of Jesus Christ is filled with vile, sinful, wretched, wicked, depraved people whom God graciously saves. And we look then not so much to make things right through waiting it out or working really hard, although that can be fine, to overturn a bad political decision Decision, or we think if we just get the right candidate in and then maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg will die under a Republican and then we'll get a good one appointed and then they'll change the law. Okay, that can be all fine if that happens, but I think that's to fail to miss the point. 
This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and people who need to hear that if your conscience is troubling you, which is what I think Romans 1 is describing and seeking the affirmation in this instance of the government, that we should not be whining, we should not sound like sullen children who have had our toys taken away from us, but we should sound like gospel proclaimers to say, if you're motivated for this because there's something inside of you that says, I'm, I'm living in a way that's not right with my maker, then we would say then to the world, God loves you, God died to save you, God is willing to forgive you, and for the first time in your life, your conscience can have actual, genuine peace. That's what's happening, and I hope that the church remembers and focuses on that. I always think to myself, what's the response that I should have? If there's a trial or suffering or an issue, how do I respond to this? I mean, after all, we believe God's sovereign, right? I guess it's Reformation, Reformation Montana, so I'll ask the question, are you really Calvinists? You know, we love to talk about, oh, we're Calvinistic and God's sovereign. He sits on his throne. He does whatever he pleases, as often as he pleases. But now, how do we respond to something like this? Hollywood is against evangelicals. Uh, the media is against evangelicals. The court's against evangelicals. Is anybody for us? And then I read Romans 8, and, and I'm not making this neo-orthodox. I'm just saying within a trial, uh, scriptures just, uh, they soothe me. And, and they don't become more inspired, but they do become more comforting to me. And I read it from Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And to think, by the way, God should be against us because of all of our sins. And yet because of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's for us. He who did not spare His Son, language of Genesis 22, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Including, friends, grace in the future if there is to be persecution. Right, I always ask myself the question, how could, how could Whitfield die or Huss die or Tyndale die for the faith and to think that God gave him martyr, gave them martyr-like grace? It's the same thing when you get married. You think, how, how will I live this life with my wife? Well, you don't get marriage grace until you say, I do. And same thing, God will be there in the future for us. The text says, who shall bring a, any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. I had a grandma and she said, I prayed for you every day. Grandma died. I need those prayer warriors. Who would pray for me every day? And here we know the answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, or a five to four vote? As it stands written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. A quote from Psalm 44, I believe. Christians always have been persecuted. There are always trials. And then the text says, as you know, no. In all these things we are more than what? Conquers through Him who loved us. And so while everyone may be against us, uh, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. The right man is on our side. I have some lesbian neighbors, and I just try to love them. 
So in the face of this, then, what, if anything, should the local church do now in specific response to this? Yeah, and let me add on to Gene's question. I've been asked probably 12 or 15 times today in the foyer or, or just here at the conference at some point, some point during the day, are we going to be arrested? Is this like a situation where we're going to be sued tomorrow? What are we looking at here? Like, uh, what, you know, we have doomsday scenarios in our head, and then there are those that have their heads in the sand as well and think that this changes nothing. And I'm assuming that the truth is probably somewhere between those two. But realistically, knowing that none of us are prophets or sons of prophets, the last time I, I checked, and we don't know for sure, we don't have a crystal ball, what can we expect in the coming days so we even know how the church to respond in the first place. What are we looking at? Well, I serve in a state that has had same-sex marriage as a uh, as the law for a while now. And so the the conflict now really kind of shifts to what is going to be the collision between the first amendment and this new right? You know, is what it basically boils down to. And you know, I'm sure uh, you know, the gay activists are looking for that pastor who they can, you know, take to the Supreme Court when it comes to, you know, the issue of same-sex marriage and and religious freedom. That's the thing that's got to be decided next. And so, um, you know, personally, as kind of, a, you know, at least a pastor who is well-known, I'm, I'm just taking it off the table. And what I mean by that is, is that I refuse to sign any state license when it comes to a marriage. I will not be a representative of the state of Minnesota or North Dakota. And so that takes away the ability for them to claim that I'm discriminatory. So what do you do if a couple comes and wants to get married? A couple comes and wants to get married. Number one, they need to be uh, members of our church in good standing. And they cannot be in impenitent sin. And then the next thing is, it's real simple. You go take care of your state paperwork, and we'll deal with what's going to happen before God. And so, you know, I will preside uh, over the liturgy of holy matrimony, is what we call it as Lutherans, um, and we can do that for members of our church. But I will not sign a, a state marriage license, you know, because once I open that door and become a, you know, a, a representative of the state, then the state's going to define who's got to do what, and I'm not playing by the rules. Yeah, the first, the first, uh, I think, wave of persecution is going to come against Christian universities, Christian colleges, and so on, because a lot of their students depend on federal aid to pay their school bills. All of that's going to be withdrawn if the school is deemed discriminatory, and then those schools will also lose their tax-exempt status as, you know, uh, 501c3 organizations. That's probably going to affect parachurch organizations as well uh, if the government concludes that you're not a church. And, and there is a specific federal definition of a church. If you're not a church, if you, if you don't uh, meet the legal requirements to be classified as a church, uh, I think there are people in the court system and the federal government right now who believe they have the authority to force your hiring practices to conform with uh, you know, the, the view that 
homosexuals are like a race in that they deserve equal rights. So you can't discriminate against them. You can't refuse to hire someone because he's a homosexual. That is going to get tested in the courts, obviously. So there are a lot of court cases yet to come. I also think one of the more practical, immediate effects is going to be a strong push to classify any public statement that homosexuality is a sin, that's going to be classified as hate speech. That's already the case in Canada and England where, uh, in fact, we've been fined a couple of times, grace to you, because uh, whenever there's a, whenever the text of scripture that MacArthur is dealing with uh, says something like homosexuality is a sin and is broadcast on the radio station in England, the government policy is if anybody complains, if anybody's offended, then the presumption of guilt is uh, against the person who said the offending thing. And the station actually said we've been fined. The radio station that carries us will be fined. have to pay a sometimes hefty fine. Uh, just for saying that. And it doesn't matter if you're quoting scripture or what. The, the, if, if it's classified as hate speech, you're not going to be able to say it with impunity. And um, in fact, Tony Miano, who uh, some of you know, he's an open-air preacher, twice in England now has been arrested, charged with hate speech, because in his open-air ministry preaching, um, he, he, he gave the biblical perspective on homosexuality. And the weird thing is, he, he didn't do this like deliberately. It wasn't part of his message. It was Pastor Buys who challenged him and asked him or said, do you think it's a, a sin to be a homosexual? And of course, he has to take a stand on the biblical principle and um, they'll charge it with charge him with hate speech he's been arrested twice for that and uh, that's in England I think it's coming same thing is coming to America so there'll be an attempt early I think to curtail freedom of speech and it'll be treated separately uh, as not necessarily freedom of religion because in America, Freedom of religion is sort of the first and most basic right that this nation was founded on. The earliest settlers came here because they were seeking freedom of religion. So I think the courts are uh, more reluctant to to monkey with that right than they are with the right of freedom of speech. But th So that'll be the ground, I think, that first goes. We're going to give up, and already have to some degree, uh, our right to freedom of speech. Uh, parachurch organizations are going to be probably lose their tax exempt status, and um, and then uh, I fully expect that within a generation or so, and I don't think it's going to be immediate, but within a generation or so, the the government is going to go after churches uh, who want to hold the line on scripture and say, but look, this isn't Christianity because look at all these other churches that have that ordain homosexual priests and all that. So you're not. Christianity, you're an extremist cult and will be classified as extremists and persecuted. That's the way I foresee it going. Uh, I'm prepared for that. Yeah. Uh, I never like to disagree with Phil Johnson. I fear it's going to be potentially weeks or months because it's my this, I didn't get a word. This isn't a prophetic utterance. Uh, but it's my opinion that this has really never been about marriage. This has always been about Jesus Christ and his church on earth. Romans 1 has to instruct us here. What are what is, what is the movement really about? 
It's not about legalizing per se for the sake of legalizing for that right. It's about making sure the conscience is calmed and receiving affirmation. The only people that are saying, even with a murmuring voice anymore, that it's still a sin is the church. Everybody else is cheering them. It is the church is the last hurdle, and I think that they're going to try to knock it down as fast as possible. The momentum is most clearly on their side. Universities, I think, will go very quickly with cohabitation and dormitories, losing Pell Grants. Accreditation will happen. Universe Christians are going to have to figure out if they're willing to send their child to a school where they cannot receive an accredited diploma. We're going to have to be better, better educators, cranking out greater workers than anybody else does if we're going to stay in business. And I think that it's, I suspect, Phil, there's already somebody that they're thinking about so that they can use this person for going after the church as fast as possible. And if I could, I think everything that everybody says is great wisdom here. Let me just bring it down to the water cooler for a moment. Um, and our engagement and our involvement. We're not passive in this. We're all involved, and these conversations are going to happen at work. Might I encourage us as Christians to resist the temptation to parrot and echo Sean Hannity or any conservative talk radio host who is mad and wants to bring us back to where we were when it was Opie and Andy? We are Christians. We bring this back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We point out what is happening in the spiritual realms, and we need to remember a distinction between homosexual people. People who are, if you will, bread-and-butter homosexuals are just like you and I were, slaves to the enemy. Who are the enemy in the homosexual community? There are very few. And those are the people who are going after the Bible and who are going after theology. And they they should receive a different response. Matthew Vines is not just a homosexual. He is going after God's inspired word. He's a different guy, and we respond to him far more severely. To those people who are simply in the grip of the enemy with consciences that are just keeping them up at night, we love them and we share the gospel with them. Does the gospel message change in the light of this at all? No. But let's take a cue, though, from Paul. Homosexuality certainly was happening in the first century. And let's take a cue from Paul. When he talked about and pointed out sin, he did that. But he never simply did that. As Chris said, then he pointed them to redemption and a more noble, transcendent path. We need to let people know that, that heterosexual marriage is something bigger. It is something more profound. It represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is playing out something theological. So we don't just say, shame on you for your sin. We point people to the gospel and say, there's a better way. There's a way that is in keeping with the way that you were made by your creator, and we call them to something higher while we still call out their sin. So how long before biblical Christians are jailed in the U.S. simply for saying what the Bible says? Phil touched on that. Well, you know, the, the fact is Todd's prophecy might be more accurate than mine. I, I don't know. I'm amazed as I look back over the past... 10 years, 15 years, at how quickly things have changed. I mean, one barometer of it is just the fact that when Barack Obama was running for office, he claimed he was opposed to gay marriage. Now, 
if you whisper that you're opposed to gay marriage and you're a CEO in a, in a big company or something, you can lose your job over that. It's, it, it's changed so rapidly that a lot of our heads are spinning and I don't know that anybody can predict the timeline. It's, it's definitely following the path that's outlined in Romans 1. How quickly that's going to reach the point of, you know, the apocalypse, I, I don't know and I don't want to set a date or a time. But I think one thing that's true about what Todd says, and it's that we shouldn't think that this is far off. We here today need to be prepared, if necessary, to suffer for our faith. I don't know that it's going to happen in my lifetime. But like I said, I've contemplated it, and I'm ready to go to prison for what I believe. And and also, let's be careful about saying that kind of thing publicly. I, I read today where someone, some celebrity with a voice, I think it was Glenn Beck or something, said he knows there are, and I don't want to attribute this to Glenn Beck because I'm not quite sure, but it was somebody like him who said he, he knows there are thousands of pastors out there who are ready to die for this issue. That's true. I'm ready to die for it. I'm not ready to kill for it. We're not like jihadis out there looking for a conflict. I'm, I'm ready to suffer for my faith. I'm not, I'm not ready to persecute others for it. Yeah, I think the first thing that we have to do, and I was discussing this with a deacon last week as we knew that this was, was coming down the pike. As the church, we're going to have to remove the stigma of arrest and imprisonment. And any cursory reading of Christian history would tell you that for most of Christian history, it was not uh, it was not the end of the world to see your pastor thrown into the, the county jail. As a matter of fact, that was that was common, and we see that in England during the time of the Nonconformists um, and the great expungement of the of the uh, Nonconformist ministers in 1622. It ended in 1689, and this is where we get guys like. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress while serving in jail. And when they arrested him, his wife insisted to go with. Uh, and this was very, very common. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think we have a few Bible books uh, uh, written by a guy in jail, right? And so I have seen, this is a concern to me, I have seen street preachers in this country be arrested. I interviewed one on my radio program and, and one on a radio station in Boise, I think. Uh, who have been arrested, usually, very very seldom, or let me put it this way, never is it for the gospel, but usually it is for a noise ordinance infraction or something like that, because they're not going to come after you saying, you're a really faithful Christian, so I think we're going to put you in jail. It will be something on the periphery, but we all know what the issue is. Uh, one individual that I, um, that I interviewed was from Springfield, Missouri, which is basically the, the buckle of the Bible Belt. He was arrested in a place uh, where concerts would ordinarily go on every evening, and they busted him for breaking the, the you know the noise decimal level. Uh, but that was the only time that they ever enforced the law, is when he happened to be preaching. And what was interesting is to see people in social media then turn on the preacher for being arrested, and I mean Christian people like. Well, that's a great witness. You know, the preacher's down at the county jail. Um, we have to understand there are going to be consequences. What we don't want to do is to look for a reason or an excuse to be arrested. We don't want to look for that. But 
I think we have to recognize the reality that there will come a day, probably sooner than later, and certainly sooner than any of us want, where if you happen to see your church leaders or even yourself arrested, that it not be the end of the world, that this will be the new normal. I think that uh, what we were not very many chapters into the book of Acts before we had uh, Peter and John arrested and flogged. Yeah, we you know we forget really quickly, but we're not that remote from times when people were arrested for being a gospel witness. Uh, when we started our ministry in Canada, it was in Montreal, which in the 1950s and 1940s was a was such a stronghold of Roman Catholicism that the priests there would regularly uh, uh, instruct the policemen, local policemen, to arrest any Protestants who were passing out tracts or doing witnessing. When we started our ministry in Canada, it was a group with a group of French-Canadian Protestant, mostly Baptist men, uh, whose ministries had spanned the 40s and 50s, and they were they were the founders of the church, really, in Montreal, which now is growing and healthy and strong. But every one of those men had spent time in jail for their faith. And um, a lot of people don't know this, but John MacArthur was once arrested in Mississippi because he was preaching with a black pastor, and they were traveling around doing uh, evangelistic ministries. Uh, you know, during the height of the civil rights conflict in the early 1960s, and uh, a sheriff arrested him, took him to the police station, and detained him. Uh, I asked him once, "Did you actually spend the night in jail?" And he said, "No, no, he got out of that, but but uh, he was hauled in for that." So, uh, you know, that's it, not such a remote possibility, nor should there be a stigma attached to it. Regarding, uh, can you hear me now? Regarding pastorally uh, thinking, if you get cancer, what are you tempted to do? Spend all your time on the internet researching cancer, percentages of uh, life expectancy and alternative cures and all these things, and it's this focus on uh, what about cancer and what it's going to do. And so for me, my initial response, and we have to think through these things, I don't want to be like J.D. said with just my head in the sand. But I also don't want it to make me fall off target in terms of who I am as a Christian and how I want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I say to myself, all right, I could study all the court cases, and I live in Massachusetts. We've had gay marriage since, I think, 1991 or something like that. And I just want to make sure I, I say to myself, who is God in light of these things? I know it sounds very simple, but I, I go back to my mother. She was dying of lung cancer, and she would get really nervous because she started to uh, drown on her own fluids. And so she would say, I'm beginning to think about who God is. And she'd start with the attributes, thinking alphabetically. And she would talk about, A, he's almighty, sovereign king, B, and she would think, oh, he's beautiful, a C, compassionate, D, he's a deliverer. And pretty soon her mind was wrapped up in this immutable God. He's immutably holy. He's immutably just. He's immutably sovereign. He's immutably loving. And she was thinking worshipful thoughts. I mean, that's really the key. Can you worship the Lord in spite of this? I will confess today that I have not said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I thank you that you've even d done things 
uh, that might make me respond with, I have to trust in you. The just shall live, I think Habakkuk said, what? By faith. I believe a couple other people repeated it in the New Testament. Maybe the writer of Hebrews and Paul as well. And I just want to make sure I turn this into, you know what? I'd be tempted to think of the homosexuals as, I am better than they are. John Bunyan said, my righteousness has been in heaven for 1,700 years. I mean, we all think we're sinful, but there are other people who need grace more than we do is how we think. And I think Paul ties into that in Romans chapter 1. He knows we're going to say, yeah, those homosexuals, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, and we're better than they are. And then he turns it in chapter 2 and says, what? Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And we know better. And my sin in all this is not necessarily anxiety. It's, I think I'm better than the gay people. I, I have self-righteousness. And they need 90% righteousness, and I only need 20%. But we all need 100% righteousness unless we want to live by Romans 2.13, which says, the doers of the law will be justified. If you want to live by the law, just keep it all. And so I want to turn this into worship. Can I worship God today because of that? I've worried today. I've been downhearted today. I have a friend who's told me how to not get raped in prison. I've thought about that today. But have I thought, you know, I want to make sure I lead my congregation into, I can still worship the Lord. And uh, without having my head in the sand and without trying to say, what's my battle plan? I think, you know, today's a good day to say the Lord is worthy. God's kingdom uh, is going to be accomplished. And not one unregenerate elect person will miss out because of a 5-4 decision. So, I, I don't know about politics. I just get the microphone and start having to preach a little, so you have to let me go. I did want to talk about something that I think we need to readopt in the church, because talking what, uh, what Jordan talked about, the stigma about being arrested. I, I find this passage in Acts chapter 5 to be right, quite fascinating. I mean, the, uh, the apostles were basically put in front of the, um, the Sanhedrin, told to stop preaching Jesus, and, uh, and well, they didn't. But here's what ends up happening at the end of this exchange, Acts chapter 5, and you can read it in your Bible, starting at uh, verse 40. It says, and so uh, they called the apostles, they had them beaten, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Here's what verse 41 says. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Real simple. If you look back in church history, the, uh, it's, it's been said that the blood of the martyrs has always been the seedbed of the church. Blood of the martyrs. And uh, have you considered today that should you as a pastor, you as a Christian, lose your job, suffer dishonor for the name of proclaiming Christ, that that is actually something that the apostles considered themselves to have been found worthy to suffer dishonor. Are you ready to suffer that dishonor? Proclaim Jesus. Because nothing has changed. The Supreme Court of the United States can no sooner change the definition of marriage than Barack Obama could decide by edict and uh, executive privilege that he could somehow change the formula for water. 
you know, from H2O to something else. Nothing has changed. It's just that the nations are continuing to rage against Christ, to rage against God, continue to basically thumb their noses and stick their, stick their necks out against God. And to which we would say that's foolishness. Repent. Be forgiven. We're all sinners. Agree with what God has said about your sin and be forgiven. Christ has bled and died for all of this. And if they want to cause us to suffer dishonor, take away our house, take away our goods, financially ruin us, then so be it. All of this is passing away anyway. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. I thought there was a good quote from Al Mohler earlier in the week. And yeah, I'm a Lutheran and I listen to Al Mohler, but he said, it's not enough for us to want to be on the right side of history. We need to be on the right side of eschatology. Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And those who've been brought to penance and faith in Christ will spend eternity with him in a new heavens and a new earth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. None of this has gone. You know, it's like none of this shocked him. And so what are we to do? The same thing he's told us to do. Go and make disciples, baptize, teach, until he comes. Nothing's changed. Let me say this. John chapter 16, verse 2, when it talks about being handed over to the synagogue, um, being handed over for trial, it says that when they do that, they will think that they are doing God a service. And we end up in our mind thinking about the, you know, the gay stopo, the, the gay lobby, and it's always a they, some outside oppressive force, or they as in the Obama administration, or they as in five of the four Supreme Court justices. The truth of the matter is um, that as persecution comes, I think the greatest threat will be coming from the the church, and let me add the air quotes, those that think that they're doing God a favor. But if there's any sign of encouragement in any of this, I, I think it's this. Uh, the true visible church, those that really are belonging to God, and I, I, I can't help but, but be optimistic that even the small little, little uh, country churches out in the countryside of Arkansas or someplace, you know, really far out there that, that may not have uh, tons of people in them at the moment, as people pick sides and they choose the Supreme Court's ruling or God's ruling on this topic, I believe that you're going to see those larger houses of worship, whether it's a seeker-friendly or purpose-driven model, wherever the God, God's Word is not preached rightly or openly, you're going to see a fall out there that, that, that's like nothing we've ever seen before. I think, and we saw this uh, in Proposition, whatever, whatever it was, Proposition in California a few years ago when Rick Warren uh, made a public statement in support of the proposition that would defend marriage in the state of California. And he had his own church members saying, hold on a minute, we're against gay marriage? They didn't know that because it was so rare that he would speak out and he even issued some type of apology for that. So what's going to happen is, as pastors are forced to make a stand and churches are forced to make a stand, you're going to see people in the pew say, well, hold on a minute, I didn't know that we believed that, and they're going to be gone. At the same time, when those pastors take a stand, but it's for the Supreme Court, not God's court, uh, when they don't side on the right side, you're going to see the true sheep of God leave that pasture and go to God's pasture, and you're going to see the, 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 the liberal or progressive, or how about this, the, the non-Bible-believing church shrink as they realize that there's nothing there, and you're going to see 
God's church, I believe, uh, perhaps not grow in number, that might be too optimistic, but I think you're going to see it grow in power because it will be purified. And I think that God is a part of that right now. And to, to believe in God's sovereignty and His providential plan and the purification of His bride as our, as our groom comes, I, I have to look at this as an opportunity for the church to demonstrate who belongs with the church and who does not belong with the church. And as a pastor, as disappointed I am in this decision, I, excited would be the wrong word because I know what's coming down the pike. But... I'm thankful and I'm at peace because I know God's got a plan in it. So I don't want us all to go totally pessimistic and to freak out on this thing, but to realize God's providence has a hand in it, and I think that if your church is faithful, it will be blessed for it. Yeah, just to, just to say it real succinctly, I think the culture is going to get worse, the church is going to get smaller, but the remnant is going to get stronger. And I, I, overall, that's a win. Persecution has always been a purifier of the church. And it was it was Todd this morning who was talking about the fact that the relative lack of persecution that we have experienced in the United States is not normal for the church. It's the aberration. This is the time, this relative time of no persecution is a very rare thing in church history. And that is coming to an end. And I think we're about to find out what we were warned about in the Scriptures. Let's do this if we could, if you don't mind me taking over, Gene, for a moment. Uh, if we could just start with Todd and move down. I just want to ask one question, have everybody answer it, and then we'll be done. The question is, if, if you were talking to your church, which I'm sure you will be soon, what are you going to tell them? From a, a pastor's heart or a shepherd's heart or the heart of a teacher, what do you want your individual local church to know? If you could just summarize that for all of us, even though we're not your church, if you could speak to us as though you were our pastor, what would you tell us about this Supreme Court ruling? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to echo the words of Peter, First Peter, uh, be a holy people. Set your eyes on heaven. Be fed in the word. Do not be surprised when trials and tribulations come upon you. This is normal. And when they do, be thinking in terms of what God is thinking about, and that is the gospel. So if the government persecutes you, you submit, be a holy people. If your boss fires you, you submit and be a holy people. If your unsafe spouse is not pleasant to live with, you submit that they all might get saved. There is a purpose in persecution, and it is, in my opinion, evangelism. So keep your eyes on what God is keeping his eyes on, and that is the cross. Be gospel proclaimers. See this as a spiritual battle, not as a political engagement, not as a culture war, but this is a battle for the souls of men. Is this a time for persecution? I think so. But this is a time for the gospel to shine perhaps more brightly in your church and in your homes than it ever has before. Do not be discouraged. Do not grow weary. Your feet are set on a rock. Be gospel proclaimers because this is an opportunity, not devastation day. Number one, I would say to the congregation, if you want to worry, watch Fox News and read the Washington Post regularly and often and maybe real clear politics. 
Uh, number two, I would say if you're a man who uh, is thinking about being a deacon or an elder, uh, you should ramp that up because if they do take the front line and arrest them and send them to jail, who's going to continue the ministry of the, of the word in the local church? And so we need elders. And of course, the pastors and elders now are going to need to train the next generation of men to pass the baton because if you're a deacon or you're an elder, they take the pastor, you're next, right? What do you do? The pastor's in jail. I think the church should have a contingency program. Uh, we're just going to close up today. No, somebody's going to stand up and proclaim the word. And uh, that's number two. Number three, Chris was referring to Psalm 2. I think I'll just preach through Psalm 2 is what I'll do. I won't read the whole thing, but just listen to the first part of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And this is what Todd has been saying the last two days. Against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what's the very next verse? He who sits in the heavens bites his fingernails, is worried. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I guess I am going to read the whole psalm. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's the message to the world. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And thankfully, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. My message to my congregation is simple. That Jesus' words have a tendency to divide, you know, people in the same household. And so we're living in a day, and now it's time to muster. And uh, maybe the church is going to get smaller. We don't know. But uh, Jesus himself in John chapter 6, he, uh, he preached some tough words. And uh, that's what we call the uh, Jesus' great church shrinkage sermon. You know, a lot of people left after that. And, uh, and Jesus turns to the disciples and asks them, are, are you going to go as well? And Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, is the church going to get smaller under persecution? Absolutely. You know, but the thing is, I'm not leaving because I know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. And the local church is the place where I get to hear it preached. And thankfully, by the grace of God, I get to preach it. And so I will continue to encourage my, the people in my congregation, come and hear the words of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins for everybody. Christ has bled and died for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. This is what Scripture says. And so if those who want to be forgiven... Well, we've got something for you. Those who don't, who want to be justified in their sin, I, I got nothing for you. I got nothing. I just got Jesus' words. He's all about repentance and forgiveness. If you want to be justified in your sin, go start your own religion. But here we will preach Christ and Him crucified. Gay marriage was made legal in Montana this year through an act of judicial fiat. 
And the first thing that went through my head is I was counting the number of churches in my town that would be marrying homosexual couples uh, before the year was out. was disappointed in that, disappointed to see that happen, disappointed to see it happen to the Big Sky State, disappointed to see that in my hometown, in my community, in the county where I live and raise my children. And, and, and then it, it, it hit me. Listen, all I can do is what I can do. And all my church can do is remain faithful to the Word of God. That I have no power or ability of persuasion upon those who do not see God's Word as inerrant or as authoritative or sufficient. Uh, I cannot change their mind. I cannot do any. All I can do is be faithful to preach the Word of God and pray that the Holy Spirit might use it to quicken souls. That's it. And so if I were speaking to my church, I'd say, listen, the truth of the matter is the rest of the world may bend their knee to bell, but Fellowship Baptist Church is not going to do that. Every other church in the community may begin to uh, ease up on this issue. They're certainly not all going to marry homosexuals this year, but they may bend on the issue. They may compromise on the issue. We've drawn our line in the sand, and that, that line is every line from the Word of God. That's what is not going to shift. It's not going to change. It's not going to evolve. That's where we're at. Uh, there was uh, a young lady, uh, a new reporter to our community from Chicago, wrote an article in the paper uh, saying that it was time for Montana to celebrate gay marriage. And I responded with my own letter uh, to the editor, and I'm a columnist for the paper, so it was nothing out of the ordinary to see my response to something like that in the newspaper. And she actually used Oscar Wilde as her example of why gay marriage should be legal. And if you know anything about uh, his past, that is the wrong example to use when trying to prove the normal, normalcy of something that is sexually deviant. But I responded, and then she responded back again, and lots of people, as the newspaper posted that article on their Facebook page, were saying things like this. Don't you know you're going to lose? Don't you know gay marriage will be legal in Montana in no time? Don't you know that any day now? And so what they couldn't grasp, what they couldn't understand, is that why I was so stupid as to not know that we were going to fight a losing battle. And here's what I said. Well, I know that we're going to lose this battle. I understand that my voice in the end will not be listened to. I get that. Here's the thing. God hasn't called us to success in the culture war. He's called us to faithfulness in the proclamation of truth. He's called us to be a prophetic voice to a culture that desperately needs to hear the authoritative word of God. So that's what we're called to. So in that, my church is going to be successful. Because success means preaching the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to preach love because it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. But it is a love demonstrated in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. And ungodliness like this, that Christ died for, so repent of your sins and believe the gospel. That's the message. And I, I just want to say how much I appreciated Todd's messages today. As he reiterated over and again, God has not called us to redeem culture. If there was anything that would, that would give me a quote-unquote negative uh, or pessimistic eschatology, it would be today. But the reality is I have read the end of the book, and Jesus ends up winning and ruling with a rod of iron. 
So I'm pretty sure that when they want to look at us and say, don't you realize you're fighting a losing battle? Don't you realize that one day if you don't repent, you'll be a footstool for the Lord God Almighty? That He will rule the nations with a rod of iron? This is not a losing war. This is a temporary lost battle. Thankfully, this isn't the battle we're fighting. We're fighting an altogether different battle, and it's fought with the Word of God. I'm glad all these guys went before I did, because those were all very insightful answers. And I think I will preach on Psalm 2 on Sunday. I was planning to do something else, but uh, I'm going to go for that. That's perfect, Psalm 2. It's just right on target. And uh, that's a great message for the church in times like these. Also remember that uh, Jesus said, look, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me. And uh, so we're in good company. And that's what I want my people to know.